So um, one of the uh, principles that I like to reflect on often in this uh, training of awakening, this uh, path of awakening, is um, a phrase that uh, within the teachings, which is maga hatta kilesawa, which means maga means the path, hatta breaks up the kilesa, that which obstructs the activity of the path itself begins to undermine and break up that which obstructs our ability to see clearly. And so in this way, um, as we practice the path, then the, the pata, the fruit, nupati, arises, dhammatang, which means according, pata, nupati, dhammatang, the fruit arises according to the dhamma. So the fruit of the path activity arises and unfolds according to the natural lawfulness of the Dhamma. And I find this helpful to reflect on because if I approach the practice from a strong sense of me having to do it all or me having to awaken or me having to overcome my difficulties, then it can get really a heavy and burdensome kind of engagement. It can start to feel too difficult and, and hard to do, and the, and the practice can become quite um, arduous. So, so in, in the approaching it from the sense of actually what we're doing is in moments, that, moments by moment, day by day, we're just applying these, these practices, this practice of path activity, the practice of samatha, which is, means to calm and to steady the, the energy of the, the mental energy in, on, the, on the body, in the breath, the practice of mindfulness, the practice of discernment, the practice of investigation, the practices that we've been doing these last few days, that, that our, our task is just to apply the practice and let the practice and the path activity in and of itself uh, speak to uh, do the work. And from that, allowing the fruit to arise according to its own unfolding, according to its own time, according to its own ripening. So it takes some of the stress out of the feeling of the judgment that can go on about, you know, I'm doing it well or I'm not, or where am I going, what's the outcome, and can I make it go quicker? And, uh, <laughs> so, so this sort of, in a way, just it's a, it's a more trusting approach to do what we can, work with just what's in front of us, just this much, and, and to in in doing so, learning to enjoy the practice itself, the the uh, to enjoy the challenge that comes in in meeting what we're meeting through the um, capacity for inquiry, to see that as something that we can actually can energize us, and. Uh, to, uh, gives us uh, permission to investigate our experience. 
So in the, the, this path activity, the Buddha taught a path, a way, a way, of walk, a, a way of awakening and a way of walking our life in service of awakening. This path he laid out uh, very simply as that which is, uh, moves us from the state of what he called dukkha, or unsatisfactoriness, or struggle, or suffering, to, to non-dukkha. Since at the heart of the Buddha's teaching was this articulation and pointing to this path that helps us move and awaken out of the experience of unnecessary suffering and struggle. And through that process, bringing us to realize a deeper abiding in peace, and in non-suffering, in clarity, and from that place being able to engage the world to, through, through, uh, through the activity of wisdom and compassion. This this path from the state of suffering or dukkha to non-suffering, the Buddha laid out in his four noble truths. So it's this that I'd like to reflect on tonight because this is such an essential teaching that the Buddha gave. It's at the heart of all schools of Buddhism. And perhaps more importantly, it's a teaching that relates very directly, whether we consider ourselves Buddhist or not, it relates very directly to our experience because fundamentally as, as human beings, as beings, not only human beings, but as beings, all kinds of beings, we experience this state of, of struggle and suffering. And some of that is inherent in just having taken birth, but some of the suffering that we experience can be overcome through this practice of the path. So I think for, you know, during this retreat and during this time that we've been together and having time to speak in our small groups, I think this is something that we are very obvious, it's very obvious that we have, uh, many of you have expressed and heard others, each other expressing some of the struggle of just being alive and just being with our staff and just being with the momentum of the mind and the body and the aches and the pains and the mind states and the doubts and the confusions. And we live in this uncertain world. And we live in a, in a world touched by impermanence. We live in a world where we are prone to experience grief and separation from the loved, where we're prone to experience being put together with that which is unloved, that we don't want to be with. So it's this experience that the Buddha points to in his teaching for us to really begin to reflect on and to understand and to come to terms with. This wasn't initially, um, this, is, this wasn't a teaching that was initially on offer at the time 
that the Buddha, before he became the Buddha, when he was Siddhartha, the son of a, of a local uh, chief or king, important person in the area of India that he lived, this teaching on the Four Truths was something that he originated and developed. It wasn't actually available as a practice in the time of his early uh, inquiry. He came across this, uh, entered his deeper inquiry through meeting and being touched and shaken up by the experience of meeting what's called in Buddhism the four heavenly messengers. Just as he uh, got to a certain age and began to wonder about where his life was going and what was the, the world about around him. And it's said that, in, that he grew up in a very protected environment, that his father tried to shield him from the realities of life, which is perhaps what parents try to do <laughs> for all sorts of reasons, and try to, to, to direct his life in a certain way. And, uh, but it said at a certain point he became naturally curious what is in the world outside of the walls of the, the, the situation that he lived within. And it said that he took a journey outside the walls of the palace where he lived and came across these heavenly messengers, the first one being someone that was uh, very sick and uh, decrepit and someone that was very decrepit and then the next one was someone that was dead so seeing someone in an extreme state of sickness someone that was very aged and decrepit and some seeing a corpse and you know you can think well you know how come he didn't see those things before isn't that something that we see all the time wouldn't he have seen these things, especially if he living in the culture he was in India, where these things are more transparent? Wouldn't he have seen these things? But there was something in the seeing of these heavenly messengers, these messengers, that really, at that point, he really took in at a very deep level. He was receptive enough to really see the power of impermanence. And it said that at that point, the vanity of, of youth and the vanity of life left him. Up until then, he had a subtle illusion, delusion, which we all have in a certain way that we'll be here forever. We, well, at least that might not be our, you know, we might not think that we think like that, but in a certain way, unconsciously, <laughs> as human beings, we act like that. As if we'll all be here forever and we'll, we'll, we can control this world and we can hang on to the things that we accumulate. And somehow we live in this way with a certain amount of denial of our mortality. And it was that that was shattered through this, this seeing. The Siddhartha Gautama saw these heavenly messengers and the veil of his delusion left him and he was very shaken up and then the fourth heavenly messenger was a a peaceful sadhu a practitioner going his way which in a certain way symbolizes another way symbolizes the path 
someone that symbolized a way of being, a way of life, a way of practice that attracted him. You know, attracted him and then fired this question, this quest. Is there anything that transcends this realm of impermanence? Or is it all just doomed to death and decay? So, you know, this is a, this is our question as well. This wasn't just his question. This is our quest. We, you know, in a certain way we seek to find something that is really, truly, profoundly satisfying for us. We seek it in so many ways, but often not in a very accurate or clear way. So through this, through this um, awakening that happened, not through an angelic appearance, but actually an appearance still a, considered a heavenly messenger because it catapulted him into his path, still an appearance of that which was actually quite shattering for him. Through that, he, he left his comfort zone, he left the familiar. Uh, in some ways, I, I like to think of coming on retreat, a mini-leaving, a, a mini-leaving of our home and our comforts for the sake of this same quest, leaving the familiar. And he went to the forest which is a sort of an, another metaphor for leaving the society, leaving the, the known worlds behind, leaving the secure worlds behind, leaving the pathway that was destined for him from his culture and from his parents, his father, and entered into this quest, this seeking. And then for many, many years, practiced a in, in according to what was on offer at the time, which were very harsh practices, yogic, ascetic types of practices, you know, for six years, you know, practicing to to cultivate very refined states of consciousness, very calm and still states of consciousness, very subtle but he found them to also be impermanent. And then he began to feel maybe the problem was the body, maybe the problem was his attachment to to the body and to form. And so then he went about trying to crush desire and crush the body until the point when it says in the suttas that he became so weak he felt, well, maybe it's eating is the problem. Maybe if I just eat less and less and less until he got down to like one grain of rice a day or something like that. He said that when he touched his belly button, he would feel his spine. Or when he touched his head, his hair would fall out. I mean, he was a pretty extreme guy. <laughs> <laughs> and then they thought, well, maybe breathing is the problem. Maybe if I stop breathing, you can see this this drivenness to try and conquer the body and conquer, find, you know, some place of peace by conquering the experience of embodiment and being alive. And if you could just have enough willpower, 
But all his efforts eventually failed him. You know, he, and he realized, at a certain point, he, he, he realized, might there be another way? You know, maybe there, there's another way of practicing that isn't so extreme. And it said at that point he had a memory of when he was a, um, a child. And in that memory he was just simply meditating and simply being with the breath and realized that there was pleasure in that practice. And that wasn't a pleasure to be frightened of. That was a pleasure that he could pursue. It was a pleasure that was wholesome. And also around the same time, he had uh, someone who had been observing him and observing this guy doing all these practices and was quite impressed, but also quite concerned for him and, and began to think that this, this yogi was on the path of self-destruction. He was this far from, from dying from his extreme practices. And this uh, person called Sujata. Uh, prepared some milk rice for him, some nourishment for him, and came before him and offered him this nourishment so that he could have some strength to continue. And he realized he needed to accept this nourishment to continue his journey, at which point his fellow ascetics had thought he'd gone soft (laughs) and said, look at that, there's Siddhartha Gautama slacking. He's eating something. And they sort of huffed off. And it's a sort of an important point because in a certain way this accepting of the milk rice was an accepting and a a welcoming of the world of form represented by the compassionate woman. It's not about crushing the body. It's not about the problem ultimately isn't the world of form or the world around us that we're constantly struggling with and trying to push away. And also at that point he was left utterly alone. He was was sort of abandoned. And all pathways that had gone before were no longer workable for him. He was at, at the point of finding a new way, which is why he became so um, renowned as the Buddha as he discovered another way of entering the way of awakening than what had gone before. And this way that he he eventually, after his awakening, after his night of uh, sitting under the Bodhi tree, and then walking from his awakening, walking to Varanasi, he began to formulate a way of teaching that could help Uh, living beings, people like you and me, enter his insight, what he was pointing to, pointing to this Dhamma, this Amata Dhamma, this undying Dhamma, deathless Dhamma, that we've been contemplating. It said that as he neared to where his former friends were that he'd been practicing with when he came near to them, because he was in his divine eye, he was thinking, I wonder who could understand 
what I've seen, my insight. At first, it said that he was very reluctant to teach. He felt that no one would understand, which, you know, is anyone in their right mind would have the same thought, <laughs> trying to teach the Dhamma. It's not so easy to do, especially to teach that which is formless, beyond the world, world of form and language. So he was, he was reluctant and, and was reclusive. And it said at that moment that a great god came down from the Brahma realms and appeared before the Buddha and requested and said, well, there are those that will understand and for want of you not making an effort will fall into suffering. So it's sort of like throwing the gauntlet down a bit, really saying, you know, you make the effort to live our awakening, make the effort to speak our understanding, even if it's not perfectly polished, and even if it's not, it's a struggle to do so. This is part of completing, the Buddha wouldn't have been the Buddha without completing his awakening through expressing it within the world of form. So this is also a good metaphor for our lives. So the, these five practitioners he'd been with, when they saw him coming, they said, oh, here comes the slacker Gotama, let's ignore him. You know, but that he was so radiant after his awakening, after his realization, after his breakthrough, when he recognized, he actually realized that there was that which transcends the, the realms of impermanence. And it's this that he set out to illuminate for others. When he drew near, he was so radiant that they couldn't help but themselves but make a seat and, and draw near to him. And it's at that point that he gave his famous Dhammachaka, turning of the wheel of the Dhamma, teaching on the four noble truths where he said there is this experience he didn't start from the place of there is enlightenment but he started from the place there is this experience of dukkha and dukkha needs to be understood so this experience of of uh, struggle of suffering so this is something that that we can relate to. There's this experience of dukkha, and dukkha needs to be understood. So it's the first noble truth. And then with each of the truths, there's a corresponding practice or response. So the naming of the territory, there is this experience of dukkha, and dukkha needs to be turned to, to be understood, to be reflected on, to be engaged. In the second noble truth, there is that which causes dukkha, or there's a cause of dukkha, or that which gives rise to this experience of dukkha, and this needs to be, this cause needs to be let go, needs to be abandoned. The third noble truth, there is an ending of dukkha, and this ending of dukkha, this ending of suffering needs to be realized. And then the fourth truth, there is a way to bring about this ending of dukkha, which is the path which needs to be cultivated. 
So in this very simple but succinct template lay the core of his profound transcendent insight and a way into that insight through the very human experience of struggle. And coming into relationship with the experience of dukkha not from the reactivity that we have to the experience of suffering where we're constantly distracting ourselves or repressing it or projecting it outwardly so problems out there somewhere or projecting it inwardly onto the self there's something inherently wrong with me because I'm experiencing this struggle and suffering it's a very dispassionate diagnosis that just says actually inherent in taking birth there is this dukkha there is the dukkha what's called the dukkha 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 is the dukkha just of it's a certain kind of dukkha that we won't really avoid because we've incarnated it's the, the dukkha of getting an age, having an aging body, dukkha of painful knees when you sit, <laughs> the dukkha of of uh, you know just being uh, in in the experience of limitation, the dukkha of loss, the dukkha of you know just the, the everyday dukkha that we experience just through being here in our in being and feeling ourselves within our embodiment and within our the limitations of that getting sick or things not being quite how we want them to be there's the dukkha of the just the subtle dukkha of the passing of what is pleasant the dukkha of impermanence which we'll experience we're not avoid that even the buddha there was a, 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 a time in his life, there was many, many different challenges that he experienced, but there was one time when, he, when his great disciples, Moggallana and Sariputra, when they died uh, before he did, he said it was like two great trees had fallen. You know, he felt it. He wasn't like, oh, I don't feel anything. You know, he definitely felt the loss. And it's you know, a very powerful image of beautiful ancient trees that fall. If you've ever known a tree that's been uprooted in a storm, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a very, you know, it's a feeling of this loss, the loss of something that's been there that's been supportive. But then there's this dukkha, it's called uh, Sankara dukkha, that emerges from the avijja, the ignorance of the mind. And it's that dukkha, the dukkha that arises from our our lack of understanding, from our reactivity, from the fundamental ignorance within the mind that can be overcome. And it's that dukkha that we can consciously work with. It's very different to have a relationship to the experience of suffering that's conscious than to unconsciously suffer and create more and more suffering from our inability to really be with the experience and to investigate it. So this uh, sankara dukkha, it's this that the mind 
in a certain way the mind not understanding or not knowing its deeper nature as awareness has this constant sense of identifying, moving out trying to find a home in a thought, in a feeling, in a memory, in a perception, in a plan, in a project all the things that we've been observing so closely these last few days trying to locate a sense of stability in that which is inherently unstable. And it's there, as soon as that that happens, then automatically there's the experience of some unsatisfactoriness or struggle that arises along with that movement of identification. So it can be quite subtle, this, this, this identification with the, the self trying to find a shape and permanence within the world of change. And it, within that, the inherent sense within the experience of the self of this sense of separateness and loss and grasping and holding and uncertainty yeah, so that's a quite subtle level of dukkha. The, the Buddha also pointed out other levels of dukkha that are inherent within our experience. The loss of loved ones, being with what we don't want to be with, not getting what we want. And the, the extra dukkha that we add on top of what was already dukkha dukkha. <laughs> you know, when we were already already you know living with an aging body or we have some sickness or we have with the mind state isn't as we would like it to be or we're sitting you know someone in the hall is disturbing us or the food isn't what we want it to be then that's just how it is and then we add an extra thing on top where we actually the mind itself is creating the dukkha we think something outside is doing it to us but in fact we're doing it to ourselves from this fundamental ignorance. And this, Ajahn Chah, teacher would just say, this is really generated from what he, he would simply call from this second noble truth, the wanting and the not wanting of the mind. The mind's constantly in a state of agitation in relationship to the moment. The moment, the experience is as it is. You know, all the different experiences we have, painful bodies, or pleasant feeling, unpleasant feeling, success and failure, praise and blame, loss and gain, happiness, unhappiness, all of these things we experience. But it's it's the agitation around the wanting it to be other than what it is and not wanting what it is this sort of chronic, constant push and pull around the moment of, of the actuality of what is that generates this experience of struggle and stress. I don't want it to be like this. I want it to be another way. And it's this that, in the, you know, that we're, we're beginning to look at. We come on retreat, when we're off at retreat in our daily life, we think, oh, if only I could go on retreat. So we plan and we 
make a big effort to get on retreat. We get to retreat, and after a few days, think, what am I doing here? If only I could get out of this retreat. Could I arrange to have an emergency call to spring me out of here? You know? So that's the kind of, or we sit in the room meditating. We think, no, maybe it would be better if I walk. And then we go out for a walk, and it's known it's too cold. Maybe I should go downstairs to the walking room. We go downstairs for walking room. No, maybe I'm really tired. We go to rest. You go to rest, and it's no, it's really boring. Maybe there's something I can eat, you know, and it kind of goes on and on like that. This sort of this this <laughs> agitation, and even when we get what we want, the mind is still looking for something else. You know, still this this these these types of what's called in the second truth these types of thirsting or desire the kamma tanha which means that the mind's constantly scanning the sensory experience for something more yeah, and we, and this is like a, there's like a billion dollar industry that caters for this <laughs> to try and satiate this desire that's constantly looking for something more and you know did we ever get what were to where it's enough yet? And did we ever get there yet when we've had enough experiences yet? And now, in you know, probably for the first time on our planet, we're able to manipulate conditions to such an extent to to go to the most extraordinary lengths to fulfill this this thirsting of the mind that can never find never be satiated, and it's taking us to the place where we've. We're, we're about to consume everything. Nothing left. Nothing, nothing left to consume. <laughs> because we haven't really understood really where, we, where desire, sh- you know, where the end of consumption really is. You know, it's not in satiating endlessly. This movement of desire is always seeking and moving us on and on and on to the next thing, but it's actually in, re- in making desire conscious and contemplating so the energy itself is not it's, it's not a bad energy it's just when it's unconscious it becomes a source of this source of of dukkha not only for ourselves but for others so to make the the energy conscious so that we can contemplate it and start to hone it and and transform it into something else Something that, that that helps us, that can support our wholesome aspiration for wise living, careful living. One very near to that's called bhava dhanha. It's this this energy is it's, it's connected with the sense of self. It's connected with this feeling of quite never being enough. In its wholesome aspect, it can be, it's connected more deeply to the knowledge that we can grow into a potentiality. But when it's kind of unconscious and shadowy and driving us, then it drives us on and on to this feeling which is, which is underpinned by this sort of quite crippling sense of, I'm not enough yet. It drives us on and on to find in, in our aims and our ambitions and our projects to to find 
you know, to find ourselves in a state where we feel we've become someone or something that has attained enough. And there's a certain relentlessness to that, particularly again in our contemporary cultures. It's a friend of ours that in, in um, Johannesburg, who's a, who was, he passed over last year, but he was one of the um, leading um, CEOs of one of the big mining corporations. And um, he's a friend of Kitty Sorrow from Oxford University, and, and he was someone that um, helped us get the little hermitage which where we've been living for many years and teachings going on there over 18, 19 years or whatever. But he was someone that we knew quite well to the extent one can um, because he was, he was actually in a certain way... Um, you know, very busy businessman, so it's hard to just hang out with him. But the moments when one would hang out with him would be at these kind of crazy cocktail parties, <laughs> which with, you know, Johannesburg bankers and gold traders and politicians, which is not usually the milieu we operate within, I, I can assure you. It's not our most comfortable zones. But, you know, we were, we, you know, we had... Yeah, we really were very fond of this person, and he was, you know, he was pretty uh, intense, intensely orientated towards his work. And uh, you know, one of the ways that he would relax would be he would drink, you know, a bottle or two of wine, and then he would kind of relax a bit at night. And I remember sitting next to him once at one of these parties and all these dinners, and you know, and he started talking. He became very open. He was a little bit tipsy, and he was quite sort of honest, talking about his work and and saying how he actually spent. He'd go into these situations, and basically, it's like Russian roulette. He would just gamble millions of dollars and, on the gold markets and hope for the best, you know. And they hired him because he was extremely perceptive, and you know, sometimes he'd really get it right, but sometimes he'd really get it wrong. And you know, and, I, and, and he started to talk about the effect of that that he'd have these like nightmares. And I'd say, I said, well, what do you do? And he said, well, I just repress everything. And, uh, you know, but it comes out at night. And so, you know, I was listening, we're talking about it. So then I said, well, when does it ever stop for you? And he said, well, you know, when I'm successful. You know, and it's like, well, what's success? (laughs) When is it enough? You know, when you... There's one person above you in the company and you knock them off the ladder, you know, and will that do it? And there's this, this, this sort of sickness that we have. And it's not, you know, it's, you know, I can empathize. It's not just, it's easy to look at someone in that, that world, but it's in all worlds. It's in our meditation world when we sit here too, you know, it's, we want more. You know, we want it, this insight's not enough. You know, the peace isn't enough. Give me a bit more. <laughs> you know, there must be something else. <laughs> you know, maybe there isn't. Maybe this is it. You know? But that's the bhava dana. Until we awaken to that energy, it will keep even very subtly driving us on, and we'll never, we'll be robbed really of this more uh, subtler insight into this territory that we've been contemplating today.
And then when we've had enough desire, when we've sort of satiated ourselves, then this third form, what's called vipahuatanha, kicks in, which is the desire not to exist. It's the complete contrary. And this is, you know, this is often very common for us as well. And I think many meditators often have this, why we're attracted to meditation. Because some part of us would really, we want to be free of pain. That's the wholesome aspect of that desire. It can drive us in a way to really explore how do we be free from pain. But often our seeking to be free from pain is not necessarily that wholesome or wise or conducive to real freedom from pain. It just becomes a, a shutting down, a, want, a not wanting to be here, an inability to be really fully embodied in our life, a sort of a desire not to exist somehow, to stay under the duvet, not feel. And that can actually be quite profound and quite pervasive. And just, just an undermining. Something I, I've worked with a lot in my life. And for many years, it was just who I was. And I began to realize it was a sankara. It's conditioned. And I could actually start to contemplate it and begin to get to the root of the feeling of that, which is actually a very profound feeling of just really not wanting to to be bothered, to exist, to feel, to be here. And, you know, and, and, and it's, it's the, the difference between being shaped by that desire, the self shaped by that desire, and suffering unconsciously, shifting to the ability with mindfulness to contemplate that just as a dhamma. Because when there's, when the transformation from ignorance into awareness when there's an increase of mindfulness and awareness, then all of these forms, these energies of tanha, of desire, of craving, of resistance, they become dhammas, they just become part of nature. They're less of a personal issue, something we can contemplate and something that, as the Buddha encouraged us as we contemplate, to let go let be, not or not identify. And in that moment when there's a relinquishment, then there's the recognition, there's a moment of recognizing and entering into the territory that we've been contemplating today of this third noble truth, of what's called Niroda, Nibida, Nibbana, dispassion, Viraga, letting go, recognizing, recognizing fundamental peace of the mind that's no longer grasping, no longer reacting, no longer caught in wanting or not wanting, but fully here and able to recognize a fundamental peacefulness that's inherent within the moment, within the heart when the suffering subsides. And it's this that the Buddha encouraged in his teaching of this Four Noble Truth, this here and now recognition of the the deathless Dhamma, the undying Dhamma that needs to be realized, tasted. We know it by the taste of peace. 
we know it by the taste of, of, of a sense of relief, a relief. In this the, the Buddha called, he said, this recognition of Nibbana, he called, is the subtle. He called it the cessation of lust, hate, and delusion, the taintless, the unweakening, the everlasting, the invisible, peace, the deathless, the superior goal, the blessed, safety, exhaustion of craving, the wonderful, the marvelous, the non-distressed, the naturally non-distressed, Nibbana, non-affliction, fading of lust, freedom, independence from reliance, the island, the shelter, the harbor, the refuge, the beyond. And it's this that we contemplate in meditation, turning to recognize in moments when the, the mind is not grasping, not wanting, not, not caught in one of these forms of desire, not pushing away, not reactive, recognizing this fundamental nature of awareness, of presence here and now, which can't be captured, which can't be named, which can't be seen as an object, but can be known tasted. It's in this, in this process, and some of you talked about this in the groups, in this process of shifting from identifying so much ourselves through these movements of the desiring and of the, the mind that's caught in desire and aversion to recognizing more this peaceful or formless abiding, there's a sort of territory, there's a territory between the second and the third noble truth. There's, a, there's moments of recognition, moments of awakening, but then there's also moments within that of perhaps feeling like a loss of ground. Who am I then? All the things that I've identified with, or that my society or my culture or my family has identified me with, If that's not the case, then who am I really? (laughs) What am I? And what is my purpose? So these can become quite profound existential processes that one enters into through this inquiry into the third noble truth and through this whole practice of meditation. So I just wanted to name that, that there is a territory. Sometimes it can feel like a bit of a wilderness. Sometimes one can feel fear that can come up. Sometimes one can feel a bit lost or confused because the sense of self is, is not quite orientated in the way that it was. You know, there can be a sort of a, uh, a sense of a, a shifting that's happening, a shift of identity almost. And, the, and then in that territory, which can sometimes be a bit confusing or disorientating, it's really, this is where it's really important to have these refuges, 
that we've been contemplating, for example, a refuge of mindfulness, to be able to just keep knowing whatever appears just for what it is without getting lost or reactive or swept away. This refuge in knowing, this refuge in the the buddhi, the heart of wakefulness that can contemplate the experience rather than being uh, overwhelmed by the experience. As we negotiate some of these territories and get more used to some of these shifts that can happen, what Ajahn Lee, one of the great um, Thai masters called it, he said, when the mind gains, gains change of lineage knowledge, it passes from the mundane over to the transcendent. It will see what dies and what doesn't. It will blossom as buddho, the awareness which knows no cessation, no death. So this equating this this insight almost as a change of lineage. One isn't so much, although one has one's historical, cultural, family context that one's within, that's our lineage in a certain way. There's also this other lineage, which is the lineage of the the awakened ones. This tasting, this entering into this third territory of the third noble truth is the beginning of the process of a change of lineage, when one starts to know oneself in a whole other way. Not just through the designations that are given to us through our conditioning and through our culture and through our family. So this, this place, this, this um, third noble truth, which needs to be realized, is a place of non-struggle, non-suffering, release, putting down. So the, the Buddha encouraged us to realize this through the practice of letting go or putting down the struggle. And this we can enter into and explore in the moments of our practice. Like here and now, in the mind, you know, what is the mind struggling with? Usually it's, as Ajahn Chah would say very simply, we don't want what's here, we want what isn't here. <laughs> so we can put that down for a moment. <laughs> yeah. you know, if there's dukkha arising, then usually underneath there's that struggle going on. We don't want what's here, we want what isn't here. So rather than believing that and following that endlessly, to challenge it. And challenging it through, can we more deeply accept? It's not a complete frozen place that we can only accept how things are, that we can't respond wisely. But at a more subtle, more deeper level, the more we can really accept, this is how it is this body, this heart, this mind, this room, in this moment. It allows us to touch. It allows the, the struggle to lessen and for us to touch an underlying okayness. 
okay with even if it's not okay. So this um, practice to deepen into this insight, the Buddha encouraged through, the, through his fourth noble truth, cultivating the path, the path of wisdom, the path of ethics, and the path of right action, path of meditation, path of careful speech, path of right livelihood, the path of living, in essence, as harmlessly, generously, compassionately as we can within the world, the path of wholesome karma, and also the path of investigation to use our life not to just be a leaf in the wind, not just to be endlessly, needlessly suffering, but to realize we have the power and we have the skills and we have the means through these practices to actually bring about an ending to unnecessary suffering, not only for our own welfare, but as the Buddha was encouraged when Brahma Sahampati, the great god from the Brahma realm, came before him to do this practice and to express the fruits of this practice, not only for our own welfare, but for those within this world who can hear and can be um, responsive to this Dhamma. So the Buddha said about these Four Noble Truths, just as one faring through a forest should see an ancient road traversed by people of former times with beautiful pools, groves, and gardens, so have I seen an ancient path traversed by enlightened ones of old. Having fully come to know this path, I have established this way for the welfare of all beings. So finishing our, um, this uh, session of our practice with a sharing of blessings on the fifth page of the chanting sheets.
sun arises from my practice. May my spiritual teachers and guides of great virtue, my mother, my father, and my relatives, the sun and the moon, and all virtuous leaders of the world, May the highest gods and evil forces, celestial beings, guardian spirits of the earth, and the Lord of death, may those who are friendly, indifferent or hostile, May all beings receive the blessings of my life. May they soon attain the threefold bliss and realize the deathless through the goodness that arises from my practice and through this act of sharing. May all desires and attachments quickly cease, and all harmful states of mind, until I realize Nibbana in every kind of birth. May I have an upright mind with mindfulness and wisdom, Austerity and vigor, may the forces of delusion not take hold, nor weaken my resolve. The Buddha is my excellent refuge, unsurpassed is the protection of the Dhamma. The solitary Buddha is my noble Lord. The Sangha is my supreme support through the supreme power of all these. May darkness and delusion be dispelled. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.